Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Jason Kenney is the leader of the UCP. Let's have a listen to a few words that Mr. Kenney issued last night in his victory speech. If we work hard, stay humble, and earn every vote, we will ensure that this deceptive, divisive, debt-quadrupling, tax-hiking, job-killing, accidental socialist government is one and done. So, I mean, that could have been anybody. That could have been any victory speech in any political arena at any time. It was Jason Kenney. It was in Alberta. And specifically, how does that victory of Jason Kenney resonate this morning throughout uh, Wild Rose Country. John Hempy joins us, Chorus Radio News reporter, who's been covering the uh, the leadership campaign and is also with News Talk 770 in Calgary. John, thank you for the time. Is this a particularly celebratory day in in Alberta with Mr. Kenny, uh, now the, uh, the prodigal son, home leading the new Conservative Party? I think for for both conservatives and even for those on the, on the left side of the spectrum, um, I think there's celebration going on today to to a, to a large extent. I mean, let's start with the conservatives. There's a, there's a clear direction forward. There's actually a face. There's somebody who's going to lead this new United Party going forward. So I, I think you know there's a lot of happy faces on that side of the equation. There are some people who are dejected. We'll talk about them in a second. Go to the left side of the spe- spectrum, though. I talked to Deputy Premier Sarah Hoffman last night. You know, she congratulates Kenny, but on, on, on the flip side, she also says, you know, we know who this person is. And I think, you know, for them, it confirms what game plan they've been working toward in terms of trying to, um, you know, to position him and position this new party. Um, you know, a lot of those personality politics, um, they know where they're going to go in 2019. They know probably the targets that they're going to go after in 2019. In the middle, there is a group of people um, and you see it on Twitter, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, Roy, I don't know whether or not it's just a bunch of Twitter voices or if it's a bunch of real voices, uh, but there are people who would identify as red Tories today sitting there going, hmm, I have some decisions to make, uh, because the social conservative leanings of Jason Kenney, despite a bit of a pivot, which is something we could talk about last night, despite that pivot, um, they, they know going forward that um, they, they want a new home. There really is a, a choice now to be made in 2019, no question. There's the NDP with Rachel Notley, and then there's a, a very conservative Jason Kenney who will provide, I'm sure, a lot of opposition and a lot of uh, incoming for the uh, for the NDP between now and 2019. What about the other two candidates for the leadership? Do they still have a significant role to play in the party? And uh, what's the feeling between them? You mentioned yesterday there was a lot of kumbaya going on leading into uh, into yesterday. Well, let's start with Doug Schweitzer. He was the underdog. And, I mean, talking to him yesterday, he's gung-ho. He wants to be able to uh, get a, get get the opportunity to run in the 2019 election so, so long as he gets Mr. Kenny's uh, uh, blessing to do so. And I think he's willing to talk policy. He wants to have his voice heard because he does represent uh, millennials, which will be the largest voting block in the 2019 election. Uh, so I think he has, you know, I think he's all aboard. Brian Jean did not talk to reporters last night. He's going to talk to reporters tomorrow at the Alberta legislature. Uh, he did put out an email to his supporters, you know, saying thank you for all your support and thank you for all your support over the last two and a half years, which 
my eyebrows raised just a smidgen on, on kind of when, when somebody starts talking about the past, I don't know if, if there's a future necessarily, uh, but he has said, you know, in, in any time that we've talked to him, he'll, he wants to be there going forward. When Kenny brought him up on stage last night, he bounded onto the stage. He, he seemed somewhat, uh, you know, engaged. So um, Jason, uh, Brian Jean is the one I think, though, that, that we, we want to watch in the next, say, 24, 48 hours and see what his next steps are. John, what about the relationship between Jason Kenny and the Alberta media? Um, you know, I think so far, to be quite honest, I mean, it's been, I mean, it's, it's like working with any politician to, to a large extent. There's a volley back and forth. Um, you know, I, I, I don't find it terribly different um, than, than dealing with any of the other politicians in this province right now. Um, you know, I, I would contend that uh, at least from my my interactions with him and his communications people, that um, he would be more open than Stephen Harper to to going on on talk shows and and taking interviews and those kind of things. Um, if if you remember the Harper days, I mean, it was it was like trying to pull teeth to get somebody to talk to you. Sometimes um, Jason Kenny doesn't seem like he's necessarily in that vein, but then again, he's only been leader now for for what twelve hours. So. Yeah, and I tried to get him on today. Well, again, here's the thing: is that the Kenny camp has, you know. Um, the, the phrase that I would use to describe how the Kenny campaign has run is it's highly stage-managed. You know, I'll take you back to the PC leadership convention. Um, on the day that he arrived uh, for the start of that convention, uh, he drove up on Stephen Avenue Mall, which is kind of like a pedestrian-slash-passive vehicle uh, walking street in, in Calgary, pulls up in this truck that he's been on uh, a, a province-wide tour in, and gets out, and there's a Unimike set up in front, and, and, he, and he, all, all the people who are behind him are, you know, Far back enough so that when the cameras look at him, uh, they are you know they're crushed in the background and, and they have little pockets. They've all been briefed on how to cheer appropriately and those kind of things. So this is a highly stage managed affair. When he won the PC leadership, it was the Sunday after that we had our first chance to talk to him. Uh, today we have a chance to talk to him in about 90 minutes from now. And so this is there's a script to how the Kenny campaign plays out, and they don't like to scoop themselves. Yeah. Somebody said to me that Jason Kenny needs to become the Brad Wall of Canada, with Mr. Wall stepping aside very shortly. I thought that was a fairly astute commentary to make because there clearly is a is a vacancy there. Mr. Wall appealed to so many conservatives and was, according to polling, the most popular premier in Canada, regardless of which party you were looking at or supporters you were talking to. So there's an opportunity there for Jason Kennedy to become the Brad Wall, the next Brad Wall. I spent more than a decade uh, working in Saskatchewan uh, with the news talk stations there, and I can tell you that the rise of Brad Wall, actually, I, I worked, my very first job was in Swift Currents in television, and I covered Brad Wall. It's been more than 17 years now that I've covered Brad Wall. You know, there's a different personality to Brad Wall than there is to Jason Kenney. I think that that's a very fair commentary. Um, you know, Brad Wall is the kind of person who, um, off camera and before the, before the tape starts rolling, you know, we'll share with you a, a joke about something he saw on The Simpsons last night. Uh, I don't know if Jason Kenney is in that same model. I, I haven't had a chance to get that close to him. Uh, but Brad Wall has also allowed himself to be very vulnerable with the media as well in, in Saskatchewan, where, um, you know, when uh, I go back to my time at News Talk, you know, the whole Premier's Picks thing that he does on the radio, um, you know, that that's a pretty vulnerable spot for a politician to let him be so. You know, be inside of. I don't know how vulnerable Jason Kenney will be, and I think a lot of that speaks to how Bradwell is perceived in Saskatchewan and across the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I mean, I remember one day we were uh, we were waiting for Bradwell 
to uh, call in. And it was the only time that he was late getting on the show. When we did get him on the air, he said, Roy, I'm so sorry that I'm late, but I was at the Canadian Tire in Swift Current. I was having the propane tank filled because we're having a barbecue tonight. And the guy was taking forever to get it done, so that's why I'm late. I'm sorry. I thought that was so human. You know, so I didn't pull the, I didn't pull the usual talk show host bit of a, where are you? <laughs> and, and that's classic Brad Wall. And, yeah. and the thing is, I, I don't think a lot of us have been able to get close enough to Jason Kenny to know what, you know, what kind of things make him tick on that more personal level. We don't, you know, we, we don't really have a, a great personal sense of Jason Kenny, I think. And maybe that's the thing that we'll see now that he has this leadership, now that he's not having to fight for the title uh, among conservatives, um, because, let's face it, the UCP makes up, well, the, the, you know, the, the people who elected him as leader uh, make up 2% of the eligible voters in, in all of Alberta. Mm-hmm. Now, now Jason Kenny has to convince 98% of the, you know, the, the, the other 98% that he, he's the man for the job. And maybe we'll start to see some more uh, layers peel back as, as we go through this. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. John Hempy, Chorus Alberta reporter, is with us. He's covered the leadership campaign for the United Conservative Party of Alberta. What do you expect as far as a relationship between Mr. Kenny and Mr. Trudeau to be? Do you think that Jason Kenny is going to, because he knows Trudeau, he's seen him perform, he's been in Parliament with him, he's seen him both on and off the stage. Do you think he's going to try to draw Trudeau into an exchange or a series of exchanges, John? I, I think he, he's, he's long talked through this campaign of, I'm going to take the fight to Justin Trudeau. Now, I think, quite honestly, I think, I think Jason Kenney is looking at 2019 and beyond a lot of times when he says that, because I, I think that he, this, is, this has never been a campaign for the leader of the PC party or the leader of the UCP. This has been a campaign for the premier's office all along. I mean, you know, I think this is, winning is the goal for Jason Kenney. And so he's talking about, I'm going to take it to Justin Trudeau. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of it in the media. You know, he's going to, he's going to take the liberals to task a lot of times in, in, in the things that he says and shine spotlights in areas that he feels he can score points with. And so, you know, by all means, I think he's going to be putting it out there. I think you're right, though, in, in, in kind of went before we went to break where, he, you know, your analysis that maybe Justin Trudeau will sit back and go, well, you're, you're not a, you're not a premier. You're, you're, you're a party leader. You don't even have a, a seat at the legislature. Um, there's a lot of people who yell at me, and we're just going to keep on doing business with Rachel Notley. John, thank you so much for the time yesterday and today. You're a really knowledgeable guy on these issues. Much appreciated. All right. Thanks so much. And just, you know, as you go into your listener segment, one last thing. Yeah. You know, Alberta is definitely known for beef belt buckles and, and boots, right? But there's also some Birkenstocks around this province, too. Really? And I think that's a thing to keep in mind as, as uh, Alberta continues to evolve. So, Anything's possible. Birkenstocks and 10-gallon hats. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, John. Cheers. John Hempy, Chorus, Alberta Radio Reporter. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister Trudeau met with the family of Canadian Neil Bantelman, convicted of sex crimes against three minors he taught at the International School in Jakarta, Indonesia. There is significant doubt that Neil Bantelman is guilty of the crimes And uh, Mr. Trudeau has said he will raise this with the Indonesian government, from what I understand. Guy Bantelman joins us on the Roy Green Show, Neil's brother. And uh, Guy, thank you very much for taking the time. And is this the first contact that you've had with Mr. Trudeau? Uh, Thanks for having me. And no, this is the the third interaction I've had directly with the Prime Minister. Uh, We've been uh, lucky enough to to meet with him on previous occasions and, and really get his commitments and 
and this was important with with uh, the prime minister being in Burlington. It was important for my mum to be able to uh, to hear it directly from his uh, from his mouth. And uh, great to see his his energy and his commitment to the case. What did Mr. Trudeau assure the family of? Uh, that he will not rest until this uh, case is resolved and Neil is back in Canada. He uh, he fully believes in Neil's innocence and uh, he is committed to doing what is necessary to, to bring Neil home and resolve this issue. There's a great deal of opinion that your brother is innocent. There's a great deal of opinion in Indonesia that your brother is innocent. And last year, the Indonesian Supreme Court overturned a lower court's ruling that your brother is innocent of all charges, and it was the Supreme Court of Indonesia that returned him to prison to serve the 11 years. What was the rationale that this justice system used for acting as it has? Because they have been extremely inconsistent, have they not? Yeah, I think the if you you know take the time and look at the entire trial and, and the purported evidence uh, that has been used, it's... Uh, it's almost laughable at times, and uh, it really goes against our North American way of thinking and how a, a trial would, uh, would would be conducted. And uh, I honestly can say, if if you read the transcripts of the court case, you you just you would shake your head because you just can't believe some of the things they've talked about have been admitted into the system, and then on the flip side, some of the things that have been rejected throughout the system for for their reason. But again, a sovereign nation with their own rule of law. Uh, it, it gets more difficult as you move through the process because it's not about reviewing the entire case. It's about reviewing any new new evidence. And, you know, I think Neil's defense team did a great job of putting together a very solid case for Neil's innocence. And uh, unfortunately, none of that is, is, is resurrected as you go through these appeals. It's only anything that is new that it's submitted. So that, that makes it tougher as time goes on because there's really no new evidence to, to mm-hmm. provide. How would the court system, uh, how would a trial be specifically different in Indonesia than it is in, in, in Canada. As, as I recall our conversation just over a year ago, uh, Guy, you were telling us about what happened in the courtroom, uh, and, and it really it struck me as being bizarre. Yeah, I think, you know, again, you're, you're looking at a, a court case and allegations that are based on uh, a mother's interpretation of a child's actions, and, you know, these are not actions where the child stopped going to school or started acting out or was, you know, resentful or ag- aggressive. You know, there was, there was nothing that was untowards about this child and his, his normal everyday uh, activities at school. Um, it was about what the mother was interpreting, and there was no physical evidence, no medical evidence. There was no uh, other, you know, adult witnesses that could come forward and corroborate the stories. And so from a, from a North American point of view, you know, it really did lack in terms of uh, of, of true evidence that would lead to, let, let alone any allegations or charges, but any conviction. And, that, and that's what's really kind of dumbfounding. But again, different lo- rule of law, and it, it's a different kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. How's your brother doing? Uh, he's, he's doing well. You know, he does go through kind of peaks and valleys of uh, emotions uh, as he gets towards the end of a school year. His birthday's in there, and it's one of those milestones that you reflect upon and this was his third birthday in in detention so that was tough and you've also got this turnover of individuals that have been there on Neil's team so the Canadian ambassador uh, staff at the embassy staff at the school and as they move on to different posts you know new people come on and they need to be brought up to speed and and there's a comfort you get with people that know the system and, and know what's going on so that, that, that's tough for Neil also mm-hmm. uh, again back to Justin Trudeau meeting with the Prime Minister did he give you a specific timeline as to what he was going to do and when he was going to do it 
we're looking at what options we have available to us as we move toward, through, through the legal process. And as you know, some of the doors get closed, we've got to look at other options. Uh, the Prime Minister is, is focused squarely on APEC coming up in Vietnam in the middle of November. Uh, we're looking at um, in the you know the preceding several weeks to get the case up to the highest levels, and, and not that it's not there already in Indonesia, but make sure that people know that this is going to be an emphasis of the Canadian delegation. And uh, the Prime Minister was very clear that this will continue to impact on Indo-Canadian uh, relations and what we can do as uh, as you know as as countries and, and partners in the, in the world. And, that's important, too, because that's really the highest level of diplomatic action that can occur to hopefully resolve this issue. Guy, the Harper government spoke out against the conviction and imprisonment of your brother. Did they take any action? No. You know, I have to admit, and regardless of political stripes, uh, you know, the Liberals have uh, done yeoman's work in terms of turning around how uh, not only my brother but some other Canadians are dealt with abroad uh, I think we've had some positive results in some other cases, and it, it really is uh, a difference in how these cases are handled. And, and I can tell you as someone who was, you know, fully entrenched in global affairs as, as the government's changed several years ago, the, the, the difference was night and day. And uh, obviously that's worked favorably for Neil. He's got a lot of support up and down the government on both sides of the House throughout global affairs. And I, and I think that's a, a new sort of outlook and uh more forceful type of uh, approach that the government's taking and global affairs is taking. Guy, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll be talking again, and uh, let's hope that the Prime Minister is able to uh, take care of the situation involving your brother because there is a consensus view, as far as I can tell, that he's innocent of what he was convicted of. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The U.S. President Donald Trump declared an opioid public health emergency a couple of days ago. And exactly what does that mean in real action, and how will it affect up to, I think the number is 110 million Americans who are suffering from chronic pain? Before I introduce you to my guests, I want to quote uh, Dr. Carl Hart, chairman of the Department of Psychology at Columbia University. And he had uh, this to say. He wrote a piece uh, for Scientific American which was titled... People are dying because of ignorance, not because of opioids. And uh, among other things, he wrote, the vast majority of opioid users do not become addicts. Users' chances of becoming addicted increase if they are white, male, young, and unemployed, and if they have co-occurring psychiatric disorders. That is why it's critical to conduct a thorough assessment of patients entering treatment, paying particular attention to these factors rather than simply focusing on the unrealistic goal of eliminating opioids, and that end quote, and that has been the, uh, the what it seems to be the end goal of everyone we've talked to in the medical community. One way or another, it's let's eliminate opioids. There are different ways of stating it. If you look at the uh, the guidelines for opioid medication in this country, there's always the sort of the byline that suggests, well, we want to talk the patient through. And I've talked to Professor Bousset, who's the editor. He's been on this program on a number of occasions. I've also talked to him off the air. And he always says the same thing. We know we want doctors to work with the patients and work them down uh, from their current levels of opioid uh, uh, reliance 
as, as it works best for the patient. But then we talk to doctors who are frankly terrified to leave patients on even a reasonable amount of opioid medication to counter their chronic pain, which is so challenging that many of them consider suicide and increasingly they commit suicide, according to what doctors have said. So this is a hugely, hugely important uh, issue. And I've received so many emails from the United States over the last week, and I think it has a lot to do with the fact that Richard Lawhorn, who joins us now, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about Richard. He's a Ph.D. He's the corresponding secretary of the Alliance for the Treatment of Intractable Pain. He's one of my guests. We've talked to Richard before, Richard Red Lawhorn. Richard, thank you for taking the time, and thank you for sending me that uh, quote from Dr. Hart. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance to uh, t- to talk with you. Yeah, let's also say hello to uh, Jessica, who who joins us. She's a cardiology nurse practitioner in Texas. She's also a pain patient, and uh, she's no longer permitted to pra- prescribe certain pain medications. Um, and she's uh, in an outpatient setting, but she's a so she's a pain patient, and she's a a, a nurse pra- um, nurse practitioner. Jessica, thank you very much for uh, taking the time, and thanks for getting in touch with me. Yes, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, let's also we'll talk to the two of you about this issue as it now pertains to President Trump, where that's going, how things stand for Americans, because a lot of what happens in this country seems to be fed this way from your Centers for Disease Control. Let me start with you, Richard. Uh, what's your view of Donald Trump moving from the terminology opioid crisis to a public health emergency And what does that mean to how the United States will approach the street corner drug dealer sale of opioids? And how does it affect the chronic pain patient who has an opioid prescription from a physician? Well, uh, for one thing, there's a good, there's probably a a rather good way to characterize the so-called state of emergency. First of all, remember that it's a 90-day renewable um, arrangement in government. And second of all, Remember that it does not allocate one thin dime to actually doing anything. Now, Shakespeare put it nicely when he used the phrase, much ado about nothing. The impact, however, on chronic pain patients could be horrendous because at least in the draft guide, in the draft uh, report of the President's Commission on Combating uh, addiction in the opioid crisis, what we see is a continuing bias, a continuing and, in my view, fraudulent misrepresentation of the causes of addiction and the sources of addiction. As Carl Hart remarks, uh, this administration and uh, clearly many others as well, for they go back a long way, has fundamentally misunderstood and misattributed a real public health crisis. We do have a real public health crisis. It's basically a a crisis of addiction, addiction to drugs that are sold in the street almost entirely, and addiction to drugs that now contain a high proportion of of synthetic imported fentanyl made in Mexican and Chinese labs and brought here and pushed aggressively to kids as young as middle school. I... uh, and personally, very concerned that our D.C. bureaucracy has frankly got its head stuck in a very, very dark place because there is a witch hunt underway on 
doctors, that's driving doctors out of pain management practice. And it's driving pain patients into agony and disability and decline by the tens of thousands all across the U.S. Now, we see that reported in social media. We're increasingly seeing it reported in very well-done articles by uh, people like Carl Hart. There are several others that are are, uh, coming out that I can quote for you if you want them. But there's one, above all, that really, really makes the case here because it's out of of, uh, medical literature. It's the Journal of Pain Research, and it's just a matter of a few days ago. The authors are Michael Shatman and Steven Ziegler. And the title is Pain Management, Prescription Opioid Mortality, and the CDC is the Devil in the Data. And what Shatman and Ziegler do in a very well-respected formal uh, publication, authoritative publication in the pain management field, is that they demonstrate that the CDC has consistently cooked the books in misrepresenting the role of various drugs and the role of prescription drugs, particularly in opioid mortality. So what we've got is uh, basically a fire alarm going off all across the uh, medical community and the community of pain, pay, pain patients that that is telling us the CDC not only made a mistake because the CDC uh, opioid guidelines are deeply in error in many areas. They made a deliberate mistake because they misattributed this entire so-called epidemic. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's talk to Jessica from uh, from Texas, MSN APRN, acute care nursing practitioner. She practices in a hospital and in a clinic. So, Jessica, what's your story? What's your pain story? And how has what's going on as far as the medical side of things is concerned affected you and what you do? Yes, thank you so much for this invitation. I really appreciate being able to have a voice um, in this in this uh, national crisis um, that uh, President Trump just uh, told us about. You know, this last couple of days here. Um, unfortunately, I believe that the media has sensationalized this to the point where patients and practitioners are suffering. Uh, the recent CDC guidelines uh, are are very make it much more difficult for practitioners, doctors, uh, chiropractors, those type of professionals to be able to adequately control their the pain in their patients so that they can live meaningful uh, and have good quality of life. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is because our hands are now tied. We are not able to prescribe medications that we had prescribed for years um, because of these guidelines. Our patients are coming to us with depression, with suicidal ideation. We've seen a dramatic increase in suicides in our chronic pain patients because they can no longer have adequate quality of life, and therefore they feel their only option is to take their own life. And that, and do, do you know what? You know what really? You know what? What, what really concerns me is that it's become so easy for people to say. I'm not talking about you, but it's become easy for people to say. Folks are suicidal. I say it because we, we know that's the case. We can never accept that. They're suicidal for a reason, and the reason they're suicidal is because they're not permitted to any longer have the medication that provides them with some quality of life. Now, Jessica, you also are a pain patient. 
So that's, talk to us about that. Yes. What, what, are you, what are you living with and, and what's being done for you? Yeah, so unfortunately I suffered a, a traumatic orthopedic injury in a bicycle accident uh, several months ago. And I was taken to a trauma level one hospital where they had to do emergency surgery to try to save my leg. Thankfully, they were able to save the leg, but unfortunately, I had severe damage uh, to my leg, severe nerve damage, and so I'm in grueling physical therapy just to be able to walk again. I was not able to walk for three and a half months, and now I'm in uh, grueling therapy three days a week trying to regain the strength to be able to walk again and to continue to practice um, in in my field and not become uh, permanently disabled. And um, unfortunately, this trauma level one hospital, upon discharge home, they sent me home with a very, very low controlled substance three uh, narcotic pain medication, uh, Tylenol with codeine, um, which was not effective for pain control by any means uh, for for my post-operative mm-hmm. and, and, you know, post-injury pain. And then to be able to get uh, adequate pain control for my grueling physical therapy, I've had to go and see a pain specialist and see him on a monthly basis and be subjected to drug testing every month to be able just to get the, the hydrocodone, you know, low-dose hydrocodone to be able to control my pain during my physical therapy okay. sessions. And that's been, and so as a medical professional, to be submitted to drug testing on a monthly basis is, in my mind, I feel like I'm being treated as a yeah, criminal you are. instead you of are. a medical professional. You are. You're, you're, they're violating any sense of decency, any sense of trust. They're violating, I think, they're violating the human rights. You want to talk about human rights? They're certainly violating those. Richard, where where are things going for the pain patient? Let's talk in, in really specific terms here. Are there enough important, I, I'll use the word advisedly, are there enough important people or connected people who are standing up for chronic pain patients like Jessica and this handful of, of, uh, of emails I have here to really significantly make a difference for these patients or not? In my view, not yet. I believe the tide is changing, and I'm one of those who are actively advocating uh, in in various forums to help make that change. Uh, Who's listening to you? Who's listening to you that should be listening to you? Well, uh, for one thing, a uh, U.S. Congresswoman has nominated me to a pending uh, Health and Human Services Department interagency task force on best practice for uh, pain management. Now, this isn't an investigation, Richard Lawhorn. What I'm getting at is people who have the ability to make change because they're elected into positions where they have that power, they're the people who need to be listening to you, and that congresswoman obviously is, because you can bring the message, as Jessica can, of the individual patient or the groups of patients who are struggling and who have very little in the way of hope because of the kinds of restrictions they're living with, the only restriction there isn't for them is the level of pain that they live with. Yeah, and we're doing something about that specifically. We're, we're now training patients and family members who have better mobility than patients 
to actually schedule interviews with our their Congress people and their senators Good. in office rather than doing things at a distance where Good. they become faceless. Exactly. You have to be there in the office. Jessica, final word from you. We have about 30 seconds. Go ahead, please. Well, I just wanted to just mention that the fact that that these this opiate crisis is is primarily in illegal and street drugs. The the vast number of the opiate overdoses are not from correctly prescribed opiate medications from physicians and providers that are treating their patients on a one-on-one basis. Thank you both so much, Jessica, who is in Texas. Richard Lawhorn, Ph.D. What's the website, Richard? Our website is facefacts with a dash dot org slash Lawhorn, and we'll be very happy to welcome you in and help you learn how to advocate. Okay. Richard Lawhorn, Ph.D., Jessica from Texas, thank you both very much. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm going to talk to two people here. One of them is um, a repeat guest on this program. I've She's actually become a personal friend. We've never met each other. She lives thousands of miles away, but we've become friends because I feel so terrible about what's happened to her, and I admire her, her courage and her tenacity so tremendously. Her name is Atoya Montague. You no doubt will remember Ms. Montague. And she continues with her legal challenge against the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for the sexual harassment and the sexual abuse that she has accused management within the RCMP of putting up with as all of these things were taking place against her. She's told us in the past about some of the things that were said and some of the things that were done to her. And, uh, Otoya, it's great to speak with you again. And let me guess, your court date's still not in court, right? No, that's right, Roy. I won't be in uh, court until the end of June 2018. And my case drags on. Uh, The Department of Justice which is the government body who defends the RCMP in these several cases like mine, is making me go through, you know, a whole new set of hoops. Um, I've been nonstop slammed with requests from them for the past two months, and I have to now fly to Vancouver for four straight days of medical examinations by what they consider to be independent doctors. Two of those that are requested by um, Department of Justice are with a forensic psychiatrist who's going to spend 16 hours with me God doing God knows what to examine me. Um, even my psychiatrist can't fathom what could possibly take that long. Um, you know, and I have to have economic reports done, and all these exams and reports are going to cost somewhere in the vicinity of $30,000 to me personally, not, not to mention what it's going to cost a taxpayer on their end. And then they're going to have me come back again several months after that to do examinations for discoveries, and that'll cost a whole other bundle of money for both parties, me and the taxpayers. And then, of course, um, I have to come back in June for a trial, which, of course, you know, was initially set for five days. But because defense has increased it to five-week trial, it's now going to cost me, personally, $200,000 to see that trial through. And again, I have one lawyer. Imagine what, you know, the defense has a number of them. So imagine, again, what that number figure looks like on the government side. Uh, to continue to defend themselves against me. And meanwhile, the principal harasser named in my lawsuit is currently on criminal trial for sexually assaulting an employee in my unit and has admitted on the stand during that trial to pursuing her and luring her to a workplace washroom in an attempt to have sex with her. 
And, boy, i got to tell you, I'm really having a hard time with it. Given we've already been at this more than four years for my lawsuit, and five years if you include my human rights complaint that I filed in 2012, um, you know, I look at some of these high-power women in the U.S. who've come forward, like Gretchen Carlson with Fox News, who initially filed her lawsuit against Roger Ailes in July 2016, and within two months she had her settlement, he was fired, and here we are a year and a half later, and she's on the talk show circuit with a book. It's all behind her. She's passed all of this now and on to newer ventures. And it really makes me wonder why in Canada a woman like me, who was in a leadership position with the RCMP for a number of years, has a top-secret security clearance, has to suffer for years on end more harassment, more denial, surveillance on me, um, disparagement, further emotional and physical suffering, financial ruin, not to mention being fired in the process in order to achieve justice. Like, we have a real problem here. When is this abuse going to stop? When are women going to be believed in Canada? When are we, as a society, going to no longer condone this type of behavior? You know, well, well Ataya, Ataya, if you'd just been a good yeah. girl and let the boys do what they wanted to do, it never would have been a problem. <laughs> You know how many friends have said that to me and Jess. You know, Toya, you're just doing the wrong thing. They thought you were going to walk in their office and drop to your knees and, you know, perform oral sex on them. What were you doing trying to give them strategic counsel and advice as per your job description? That's not what you were there for in their mind. And I remember people saying that to me and being shocked. Like, what? And then thinking, oh, my God, looking back, when you analyze your working day, you think maybe that's what was happening. They actually thought that's what was going to go on. Because when you're doing your job, they're kind of looking at you like, why are you talking? Why is she participating here? I guess you're supposed to be batting your eyelashes at them and rolling your head back and laughing at their lame jokes, not doing your job, right? So, um, and you know what, Roy, the sad part is with this whole Weinstein case uh, blowing up all over the news and the Me Too campaign, what all it's illustrating, first of all, that is identical to what went on inside the RCMP and continues to go on. Any situation where you have an organization or a company where there's a major power imbalance, usually with men who have that kind of power, the people around them are willing to look the other way and condone the behavior. Like, make no mistake, people within the RCMP are witnessing this happening, but power protects the predators, so no one speaks up. Because, for example, I'm talking to someone now who has a complaint against the commissioner of the RCMP, and, and frankly, she's so fed up, she's willing to go public with her story. And even Goodale doesn't know what to do because it's a corruption against, uh, charge against the commissioner of the RCMP, and there's no process. There's absolutely nothing written anywhere with the government or the RCMP on how to handle a case against a commissioner. It's the system set up to let them get away with whatever they want. So, of course, they do, you know. And, and then we have this movement with the Me Too campaign. And you've got our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, on the news, Global News, I believe, this week aired it, saying that this Me Too campaign is an awakening and it means the world to him. And I'm having a hard time understanding how it is in our country when starting back in 1986 we had a group of women come forward from the RCMP saying we are being mistreated, harassed, assaulted, discriminated against, and the government then did nothing but bury it. Fast forward, you know, almost another 30 years in 2011, and you've got a droves of women coming out, both from the RCMP and police organizations and fire departments across Canada saying it's happening to us too. I know thousands of people have written personal letters to Trudeau, Goodale, you name it, informing them the details, providing the facts. 
We've had a number of reports into it, and yet our government still hasn't done anything except give a modest sum of money to the class action women to hush them up and send them away. Right, and on the day, on the day, Mr. Goodale spoke to the country about the class action suit and about the women who were being abused within the RCMP. He used your name. He mentioned you. Yeah. But, but he's got none, but he's done nothing for you. When I contacted okay. them on your behalf and I said, you know, let's talk, and I, I've been authorized by Atoya to approach you on on her behalf, I got some gobbledygook e- email back that made no sense whatsoever, and then they went they went dark. That was it. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. RCMP Inspector Stephen Goad. We've spoken with retired RCMP officers in the past, but Inspector Goad is an active officer within the RCMP. And, uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show. You and I spent some time talking off the air the other day. And and you charged the management of the National Police Service, if I understand it all correctly, uh, the National Police Service is failing employees, police officers and non-officer employees, and no one really cares. Does this have to do with the mental health issues like PTSD or that and more, including what we heard about what Otoya experienced? Well, Roy, first of all, you know, thank you very much for having me on the show and uh, sharing this time with Otoya. And it has to do with exactly all of that that you spoke about. I mean, keep in mind, this what I'm doing here today, it's not about revenge. It's not about my hatred towards the force because it's quite the opposite. You know, I love the force where I'm a... I'm a kid that comes from a First Nation community in Nova Scotia, and if it wasn't for the opportunities I had in the force, I probably wouldn't be where I am today. So first and foremost, this is about the love of the organization and, and not putting up for, for where we're going and what we're doing to our employees. And this is my perspective only, and I'm going to talk about my experiences. You know, Hopefully uh, today you know, we'll be able to get conversations started by the time we're done today. They'll get talking in order to start resolving these issues that are affecting our employees in these situations. And yeah, you're right. I definitely want to bring awareness to mental health and and to the PTSD issue within the force because I really believe we're just scratching the surface. surface. If our employees actually put their mental health first, um, the force is going to find itself in a critical spot. And it's just continuing to get worse with our existing uh, employees, including myself, that are dealing with mental health issues, in how the force is internally treating us, and, and the effects of that cannibalism nature is hurting the organization. Uh, society, we got to change our perspective around mental health. You know what? We go to the gym to take care of our bodies, Roy, or to work out to stay in shape. Well, as a society, we got to start wrapping our head around that same analogy, but tie it into the mind. we got to take care of the mind. It's just as important to get us through and. Um, And you were right when you mentioned nobody's listening. That's why I'm here today. Nobody is listening internally. I can speak from personal perspective. You know, door slammed and door shut. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to talk about the pink elephant in the room. And you're an inspector. You're a leader on on the force. (laughs) And and you don't get the support that you that you require. By the way, you wrote an amazing poem about about the force and your experience. And uh, I want to ask you a little bit later whether our our listeners can obtain that uh, yeah. in any form. But what what needs to be? What do you want to start with, uh, Steve? What's what's the? Do you want to start with your story? Well, yeah, sure. I I, I don't mind sharing my story. You know, because uh, because again, I mean, I've had lots of support from members and employees across the country this week. But you know what? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak about mine in particular, Roy. Sure. Um, 
you know, it was the summer of 2014. I mean, to date, I've got 25 years in this organization. I'm very proud of my service. You know, I put my record out there in front of the public any time and compare it to anybody. And you know what? I'd be, I'd be an average good police officer just like anybody else. And, you know, in the summer of 2014, uh, at that point would have been, what, 20, 22, 21 years of policing caught up to me. And, uh, and I hit this point where... Uh, you know, I remember breaking down in the shower crying, and I had uh, two options. It was either kill myself or uh, live. And, you know, I chose, I chose to live because there was no option C, Roy. And, uh, and that was the start of realizing that there's a different road I had to go down. And by going down that road, you know, it brought great fear over, you know, worrying about uh, how I'd be seen by my peers, how is this going to affect me organizationally. And, you know, the RCMP today, we have more support than ever before as far as being able to access mental health, because we all know that wasn't a thing in the past. But what we're failing is internally, we are creating obstacles internally that we don't need to create that are eating our own. And people like me who go through this stuff feel like the force wants us to either end up putting a gun in her mouth or hanging ourselves from a rope. And that sounds horrible and that is harsh, but that's the reality of what members and employees are feeling like who are on long-term ODS trying to fight to get back, and then the force throws these obstacles in the way. Now, like I say, in 2014, I started to break, and in two, well, I broke. And in 2015, in May of that year, I went off work. And one of the most maddening things, and I know we're limited on time and there's so much to talk about, is the internal process I had to go to access mental health. I... Uh, care and I went and I did that and I've got I got four or five appointments under my belt and then came the point when I had to um, submit for further and our process of doing that is so absurd you know elementary school students would say what why why would you go this route so at that point to access more mental health services you have to fill out forms uh, on a hazardous occurrence report which is meant for when you slip in the parking lot Roy because this hazardous occurrence report you fill out goes in and says, oh, this employee slipped on the parking lot, let's send it to the committee, and the committee would say, oh, we better make sure somebody puts salt on that parking lot, uh, you know, as soon as it starts to snow, for example. But that, they, I had to put my mental health stuff on that same form, and I had to submit it the same way. I had to submit it to my boss, who was surprised, because I was doing this all on my own, and I was managing it. But now I had to bring it out to, to get further help. He reads it. And obviously says, oh, well, now I've got to notify the CO. And I said, yeah, sure, you know, do what you got to do. And within two hours of that, I lose my command as a critical incident commander, one of four in the division, Roy. And that, that started the blows right off the bat. You know, uh, since then, I attended over 300-plus psychologist appointments. In October of uh, 2016, I put my hand up to do a return to work. Met all the, crossed all the T's, dotted all the I's, worked with the return to work coordinator, and I went back. I got four weeks into it, Roy, and for personal reasons, I, I had to step away again. Well, of course, you know, once you fall off that horse, you get back on, and that's what I did. And, and in January of this past year, I put my hand up again, and I did all the same things, Roy, that I had to do to get back in October. Everything identical. I had my doctors on board. I had my psychologists on board. I picked the date in January that I was ready to go back to work, submitted my stuff. I asked for my meetings with my boss, and you know what? The force changed the complete game overnight, uh, starting with the highest-ranking officer in the division. And that floored me because they came to me and said, you're going to take on a different role when you come back to work because this is what's best for you. 
well, you, how can you determine what's best for me with zero consultation with me, without consulting with my physicians? And then the worst part is, it wasn't even a negotiation part. It was, you're going to do this. And you, now, and you, but you were on the force for 25 years. Yeah, it's 25 years now. Yep, that's right, 25 years, yeah. And, uh, and I'll tell you, this led to the point where I tried to deal with this internally. You know, two meetings with the CO uh, resulted in, obviously, where we are today, where I fired it, filed, ended up filing a human rights complaint. I had to A-tip them, boy, because nobody was being truthful with me. You know, they wanted me to switch roles for my benefit. Now, I'm going to tell you this. It's not like, A, I slept with an employee. B, I'm a poor performer. C, I had uh, nothing but excellent uh, annual assessments. Um, D, my team and I met and exceeded everything that was ever asked of us. So it made no sense to me. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Back to Atoya Montague and uh, Stephen Goad. Stephen Goad is an inspector with the RCMP. Atoya Montague continues to try to get justice for the sexual harassment and the sexual abuse that uh, she alleges took place and uh, wants her court date, but it keeps getting pushed back. I want to ask you both a question. And, uh, Toy, I'm going to begin with you. What impact on your life and on your future life is what what's happened to you within the RCMP? And, uh, Toy, your, your name is out there. People know who you are. And I know there's a. I am. I, I know there's far. There's a tremendous amount of empathy for you. But there's, there's going to be an impact on your life. What do you expect? Or it's already happened. Yeah. What can you speak? What can you say about that? I, I, I'm so glad you brought that up because it's a point I want to make. Is that the reason we need to change these organizations? Not just because these behaviors are wrong. It's because the impact on the person's life. I was once a healthy, outgoing, vibrant, ambitious woman giving my all to the RCMP. I owned a home. I had a serious relationship. I traveled. I was active. I loved to socialize with my friends. You know, I went away on uh, girls' trips. I did all those things. And now, as a result of the ongoing trauma and harassment and discrimination I have experienced for the past 15 years, I'm a shell of my former self. I'm not even recognizable to my family and friends anymore. And I have a list of medical conditions as long as my arm. I have difficulty leaving my home. I am antisocial. I have plagued with migraines. I mean, I have medical issues that prevent me from leaving the house. PTSD has gotten so much worse over the past five years in the legal battle. You think your problems are bad when you show up at the lawyer's office in desperation. I've tried everything else. I can't get justice. What do I do? And then the lawyer says to you, it's not going to get any better here, but it will give you justice. So you carry through it. But I'm telling you, they're trying. what Steve said is so profound and so true. They basically want you to to self-destruct or kill yourself because they just don't want to deal with you. You're now a problem. You're no good to us just because, and they are the ones that caused the abuse in the first place. And that's been accepted by Veteran Affairs and a number of other bodies around. But the RCMP refuses to take accountability, you know, and that's what's happening to Steve and so many other public service employees, civilian members, regular ranking members, senior officers. And I just pray that we see more brave Senior ranking officers come forward and do what Steve's doing because they do have the power to change this culture while we okay. wait for the government, who's been dragging on implementing the recommendations. Let me Ian McPhail. Let me yeah. ask. Uh, let me ask Inspector Goad, and we're not here to uh, just take shots at the RCMP. We've been talking about these issues as they've affected women and RCMP members for years on this program, and in and in great detail. 
Inspector Goad, uh, there are other issues that you wrote about that I want to talk to you about, but we haven't got the time. We'll have you back. But tell us, please, what do you expect the impact to be of what you have, what you're doing, challenging the force openly as a, as a senior officer of the RCMP? What's going to happen to you? Well, Roy, I uh, I don't have a lawyer today, but I very well may need one after today. <laughs> uh, but uh, honestly, you know, I there will be repercussions for this today. But here's what I'm hoping for my fellow commissioned officers out there, especially at the highest ranks where you can make the difference. Somebody's going to order a code on me, potentially, for speaking out against the force. And I'm okay with that, because I believe in what I'm saying. What does that mean? Well, that means they're going to punish me. I have zero discipline in 25 years, and quite to the contrary, I have lots of accolades from internal, external, provincial, federally, internationally for my work. But, Roy, I've never been disciplined, and I will be disciplined for speaking out. But I will tell you this. The commissioned officer that writes that code of conduct on me, I guarantee you, their skin is going to be, they're squirming in their skin with the conversations I'm talking about. And those that aren't, those that are out there that are still good leaders or believe in it, well, you'll listen to what I'm saying, you'll listen to what the others are saying. It's time to make a stand, and it's time to say, okay, we've got this, you know, these these. People are bringing these points up. Is there any merit to it? Yeah, let's have these discussions. This is stuff we can fix internally. We don't need legislative change to fix it. And you didn't just write about uh, mental health issues. You wrote about issues that uh, that broadly affect the force and, and affect, affect morale within the force. Like, we, we, I wish we had more time, but we don't. But let, you, 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 you mentioned nepotism as, as an issue. Nepotism and corruption is rampant in the organization today, okay? And I don't mean corruption as far as gangster style or organized crime, but corruption and giving away your values and your ethics for what is right in order to obtain promotion, order to obtain an advancement to go somewhere you may want to go. I mean, these are things that they hold over individuals at the senior officer rank because our whole executive officer development resourcing structure is flawed and it is all internal but it is all controlled by a certain few which if you want those few if you need that CEO of the division to give you approval to do something you better be playing ball on that team because if you're not you know what chances are you're not going to get what you need but there's no system, there's no procedures in place to show that you deserve that or you don't deserve that. It's all based on the word of one commanding officer for each division. All right. They call the shots. Inspector Goad, Inspector Stephen Goad, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for trusting me to talk to me about this. Roy, and real quick, I just want to say one thing. I'm also doing this. I love our employees. They are fantastic people. And you know what? If they take my job or they come at me for this, it's going to be worth every bit of it because our people are great people. And one member said they're red to the core. They all want the same thing. They want this organization to be better. We don't want to kill it. We want to make it better. You're a good guy. Atoya, final thoughts in about 30 seconds? Well, I just want to commend Steve for what he just said today. It's a brave, brave act. I will remind your audience he's the first senior ranking officer to be willing to put himself out there on behalf of the members and employees of this organization. And I am proud to be on the radio with him. And I really do hope it starts a movement with other senior officers that say, you know what, I've had enough of this too. And the more we do that, the more the morale will change. Members will start feeling like, okay, they care about us. They're going to do something. It's a huge issue. And as you said, we could go on for a lot longer. But I will say this. I'm going to see my situation through to trial because this just has to stop. And maybe by having it all exposed under the microscope of a court system and a neutral party, it might finally really bring to light what's going on. Latoya, thanks for joining us today. Take good care of yourself. Thank you very much, Roy, as always. 
You're so kind and gracious to us. Thank you mm-hmm. so much. My pleasure. And Steve, thank you. We'll uh, we'll stay in touch for All sure. Right, brother, I look forward to it. All the best. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.